0: All right, we are going to dig into Ecclesiastes seven fifteen through twenty nine. Uh, so, if you're not familiar with our kind of general practices here at Veritas, um, often we will simply take a book of the Bible and uh, just kind of slowly make our way through it, preaching uh, verse by verse, paragraph paragraph by paragraph, week in. And And that's what we are doing with the very peculiar book of Ecclesiastes right now. We are slowly making our way through Ecclesiastes, and um, it's a rather dark book. It's a rather depressing book. Um, It's a rather confusing book. It's a peculiar book um, in that it, it is very dark, very depressing, but the goal of it is to depress us into dependence upon God. Um, and I think we've been finding, uh, that the book has been accomplishing that goal as we've been making our way through it, and, uh, here we come to Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 29, uh, which is maybe one of the most peculiar parts of this peculiar book, um, and that it's just, it's kind of obscure in, in some ways, um, and so here we are, uh, and uh, we're glad to be here. We're glad to be in Ecclesiastes 7 and, and uh, thankful uh, for what the Lord is going to do during this time. Um, so let's dig in. Uh, if you want to stand with me, actually, I just had you sit down. I'm going to have you stand with me again, if you will. Um, and we're going to read Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 29. And let's listen with, with reverence and joy, because this is the word of our God. And this is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes says. He says, In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off, that that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. This will all make sense when I am (laughs) older. Someday, I will see that this makes sense. One day, when I'm old and wise, I'll think back and realize that these were all completely normal events. I'll have all the answers when I'm older. So saying, the obviously the animated snowman, Olaf, in Disney's beloved box office hit, Frozen 2. How many of you kids have seen it? Yeah? Pretty much everyone. Yeah? <laughs> Some adults do, for sure. Of course, you'll remember Olaf's song then about how he'll understand everything once he's older and how... The world and life will finally make sense when that day comes, but it just doesn't make much sense in his young life. Maybe you feel that way sometimes. Maybe you feel like there's just so much that you don't understand, and and kids, maybe you get the impression that we adults have this thing figured out. I hate to break it to you boys and girls, but that's not entirely true. In some ways, the world actually becomes more and more confusing, more and more misunderstood the older and older you get. I'm, I'm 30-something years old. Take it from me, I'm very old. Um, 30-something years old, and, and I still, sometimes the world just utterly baffles me. I don't understand why things happen the way they happen oftentimes. I don't understand why people do things uh, the things that they do. I don't understand why I myself often, why I do the things that I do. And that's part of what the preacher of Ecclesiastes begins to talk about in our passage this morning. He starts to, to kind of transition into this new theme of just the confusing nature of our world and how we live in a world that just often doesn't make sense. He begins to, to discuss how we live in a world much of the time. It's just a very confusing place. There's so much that we don't Understand about it, and, that's, and, 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 and why things happen the way they happen, why people do the things that they do. And he talks about how, how some people try to cope with the, the confusing nature of our world, to try to cope with it, they just simply try to live good and moral and upright lives, to be nice, moral, upright people. Maybe you're this type. You might think that if you just do the right thing and keep your nose clean, that everything should work out just fine for you, that A plus B always equals C, and therefore if you do good things, good things will happen. But Is that always the case? I think we know better than that. Others try to cope with this, the confusing nature of our world by by trying their darndest to kind of figure it out by wisdom and education. They try to study the sciences or philosophy or any of the words that end with ology, and 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 try to figure this world out. And they think if I can just study enough, if I can just discover enough, if I can just get educated enough, maybe I'll start to understand this world and avoid the difficulties and sufferings of this life. And obviously there's good in, in, in learning and studying. There's there's good in trying to understand this world and the way it works. But does that really is that really going to ultimately make sense of this? confusing and difficult world. I think we know better than that, again. And so the preacher shows us a better way here. He advises us to fear God and be humble because there's so much about this world that we don't understand, that we can't figure out. And that's the kind of big idea of our text that we see here. We, we should fear God and be humble because there's so much that we don't understand about this world. We'll unpack that by walking through the text, seeing the deviations of life, the discernments of the wise, and the depravity of humanity. First, we see the deviations of life here. So, first of all, the the preacher kind of starts out this section of text with a kind of despair and lament. He's he's lamenting for the the deviations of life, the kind of aberrations of life. Things often don't happen the way that they should or the way that we think that they should. We experience a, a kind of unwelcome deviation of what is expected, that's exactly what he laments here. Verse 15, he says, In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evildoing. Okay, so he says, In, in this hevel of a life, in this vain life, in this futile life that we live, in this fallen world, I've seen all matters of life. This is, I've lived a long time. And I've seen all, all this that this life has to offer, including this frustrating, infuriating aberration. A righteous person, a good person, suffers and dies in their righteousness. And if that's bad enough, if that's not bad enough, at the very same time, I've seen a wicked man seem to do well and be successful and live a long and pleasant life. He's frustrated over the the very same observation which frustrates Asaph in Psalm 73. There, the psalmist Asaph, he says, "'Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped.'" For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he, he goes on in, in the psalm and his frustration, so frustrated because he observed the wicked prospering while the righteous, on the other hand, were suffering and, 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 and increasing in hardship. And of course, this, this resonates with us. We have a sense, a, a kind of inner sense of what is right and what is just. We've all witnessed things in our life under the sun that, that frustrate that within us. We've seen the righteous young man die in a car accident while another young man with multiple DUIs escapes unscathed. We've seen the mother of, of young children die while an, an abusive mother, on the other hand, seems to go on harming and wounding her children. We've all seen the corrupt millionaire continue in his life of luxury and wealth, while the missionary who gives his life to the lost and to the least lives in poverty and dies before his time. And it makes us sick to our stomachs. We feel it in our heart of hearts. It's not supposed to be this way. I remember just a few years ago, reading about about Ronnie Smith in the news. Arnie Smith, he was a member and a, a deacon of uh, Austin Stone Church in Austin, Texas. And his church sent him and his family to, to Libya for the sake of serving the people of Libya, sharing the, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they moved there to, to Benghazi. He took a job as a teacher. He became a, a beloved member of that community there. And one morning while he was out on his daily run, he was gunned down in the street in cold blood. He was a beloved husband, beloved father. He was a faithful member and deacon in his church. He and his family, they reoriented their entire lives, interrupted their entire lives for the sake of loving and caring for others. And he died at 33 years old. And sometimes it, it, it almost seems unbearable that that would happen in this same world where the Kim Jong Uns and the Ghislaine Maxwells of this world. Continue to live lives free of consequence, free of punitive justice, free from repercussion. It's not right. And ordinarily, things don't work like that, do they? I mean, there's, there's sort of this general principle that if you live a good and virtuous life, things generally do go better for you, right? If you're someone who works hard and loves your family and pays your taxes, keep your, keeps your nose clean— Generally speaking you're less likely to suffer hardship, less likely to suffer an early death than someone who drinks too much or someone who's given to violence, someone who regularly breaks the law. But still being a righteous and virtuous person does not a guarantee that life will go well for you. As we discussed last week, we all at some point in time or another we meet with a crook in our lot. We all meet with something that is crooked in our lives. And this is one of those crooked things in life. This is not right. It's crooked. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And from there, the preacher gives us a little bit of odd, somewhat difficult to understand application in light of this reality. He says to us, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, at first glance here, it, it may seem as if the preacher is telling us that we ought to avoid being too righteous or too wicked, just kind of be in between, of be lukewarm, be basically moral, but still let yourself sin a little bit. You don't want to be too righteous. I don't think that's what he's saying here, because in verse 18 here, he commends to us the fear of God. He tells us that the one who fears God is the one who avoids the, 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 the being overly righteous or overly wicked. And if there's anything we know from Scripture about what it means to fear God, it means to trust and revere and submit to Him as the one and holy, sovereign God. God. And therefore, to seek to obey him by living a life of true righteousness according to his word. So it seems that he can't, therefore, be advocating for a sort of casual approach to righteousness. Instead, if you look at the overall kind of context of the passage, he seems to be saying this here. He seems to be saying we live in a world that doesn't always make sense. We, we live in a world wherein things are often crooked and backwards. And even in our passage last week in Ecclesiastes 6 10 to 12, the preacher warns us against trying to dispute with God over our, our lot in life and over the crooked things in our lives. And in light of that kind of overall context, it makes sense to understand the preacher here saying that we should never seek to live a life of kind of super righteousness in order to earn a life free from suffering. Okay, so don't pursue a version of righteousness and morality that seeks to earn a good spot with God and that seeks to put God in your debt in order to avoid suffering and hardship. To put it in terms of the, par- the parable of the prodigal son, don't pursue the older brother kind of righteousness. Okay, that, that kind of righteousness, when suffering and hardship comes your way, only makes you angry toward God. God is not a vending machine that that if you put righteousness in, he gives you ease in a life free from suffering. That's not real righteousness. That's not true fear of God. That's prideful, self-exalting, self-centered, perverted kind of righteousness. On the other hand, the preacher says, don't be overly wicked. Don't live a wicked life. Because while the righteous perishing before their time and the wicked living long and pleasant lives is a deviation from what's ordinary, the truth is that living a wicked and foolish life does increase the possibility, the probability of you destroying your life and dying young. Before I was a Christian, my, some friends and I, used to live by a phrase, we used to say it all the time, some even got it tattooed on themselves, live fast and die young. I used to say that often, live fast, die young. Meaning, live carelessly, live foolishly, live immorally, live wickedly, and die young. And indeed, some of my friends from those years have died young. They have spent a significant amount of time in prison. They have suffered hardship that many of those who don't live fast simply don't suffer, typically. So rather than living a, a, a kind of a life of kind of super-righteousness, self-righteousness, kind of legal and moralistic life in order to avoid suffering. And rather than living wickedly and carelessly, it's better to fear God and live humbly before Him. Why destroy yourself? Why should you die before your time? Instead, fear God and revere Him. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Live fearfully and humbly before Him, Is the one, true, holy, and sovereign God. This is wisdom. Which brings us next to the discernments of the wise. The preacher says in verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. That may seem kind of like the preacher switches subjects all of a sudden here, but if you're familiar with the, the wisdom literature of the Bible, you'll know that there's this kind of unbreakable connection between fearing God and wisdom. And Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God and wise living go hand in hand. And the preacher uh, here praises the benefits of being wise. He, he says that wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city. And of course, we, we know that there is strength in having a kind of plurality of leadership, a plurality of counselors. It's partly why the, the New Testament lays out this pattern for us as local churches, to have a plurality of pastors and leadership. I can't say enough. I was literally just talking with Jeff Tricler and, and Sarah Drake about this before service. I can't say enough about how helpful it's been and beneficial it's been to have Dan and JJ as pastors here and serving alongside them, having their ears, having their voices. It's probably saved our church from a number of hardships that we would have otherwise faced due to my stubbornness and stupidity. It's good to have a plurality of leaders and counselors. A city that has 10 city council members is much better off than a city that has a single leader. And so it is. With someone who possesses wisdom, they may avoid many hardships and hurts in life that others may meet with because of their foolishness and pride. Perhaps one of the most underrated qualities of the wise is that of humility. In the Bible's wisdom literature closely associates these as well. In Proverbs eleven two, he says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The fear of the Lord and wisdom go hand in hand, so does wisdom and humility. And so the wise discern certain things about themselves and about this world in their humility. The wise, uh, because of their humility, make certain discernments about life in the world. The first discernment that the preacher mentions here of the wise and humble is in verse 20. He says, the preacher says uh, that that the wise and humble acknowledge that there's actually no one that's righteous. So he says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So rather than being overly righteous and seeking to master this world through moralistic efforts, rather than trying to put God in your debt with your righteousness, it's better to be wise and humble and acknowledge that there's actually no one that is righteous. There's not one person on this earth that can claim to be sinless. The Apostle Paul actually says something very similar to this in, in Romans, 10, uh, Romans 3, 10 through 18. He kind of quotes a, a litany of Old Testament texts that speak to the depravity of humanity. He says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, we like to think of ourselves as good people, moral people, upright people. But again, I would just ask you, is that the case? What if I told you that every word and every deed that you committed this last week was actually recorded on a small video camera that followed you around the entire time? And we're going to play it this morning on this screen for everyone in the congregation to see. Would you be comfortable with that? Or worse, what, what what if somehow we were able to record every thought in your mind? everything you imagined, every judgment you made, every thought that crossed your mind. From this last week, we're going to display it on this screen up here for the congregation to see. Would would you be comfortable with that? Would you still think and claim yourself a moral and upright person? Of course not. And please don't think, I'm I'm withholding, I'm excluding myself from that designation. If, If you if you knew everything I did, every word I spoke, if you knew every thought that crossed my mind this last week, if you had access to the deepest desires and recesses of my depraved heart, you would probably hate me. I would probably disgust you. You probably would not anymore want to listen to me preach and teach God's Word week in and week out. Truly, there's no one Righteous, none of us can claim to be pure. None of us can claim to be sinless, to be good, to be true. We are depraved, wretched, fallen creatures. For this reason that the preacher actually calls us to, to not take to heart all the things that people say about us. It says in verses 21 and 22, he says, "Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself... I've cursed others. You see, your proverb about listening to the cursing and criticisms of others, of course, last week, you know, we discussed listening to the rebukes and criticisms of wise people. We ought to do so, but that's not to say that we should take everything that others say about us and to us to heart. Now, Sometimes the criticisms we receive are not from wise people, but from foolish people. And sometimes what people say about us is, is nothing more than gossip, nothing more than slander, nothing more than cursing. We would do well to not take such speech to heart. But at the same time, we would also do well to not respond with righteous indignation. We would do well when we hear of someone cursing us or gossiping about us, rather than to respond with the swift hammer of justice. To consider how many careless words we have spoken. How many times we've spoken ill about others, how many times we've drooled over a morsel of juicy gossip, how many times we have cursed others with our mouths and lips. Do we really reserve the right? Do we really deserve the right to be in the place of judge over anyone? Besides, as Charles Spurgeon once winsomely said, he said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. The wise discern this. They understand that there's no one righteous. But not only do the wise discern that there's no one righteous, they also discern that there's no one wise. One of the first lessons that the truly wise learn is that they are not all that wise. We won't spend much time here because we're actually going to explore this next week in the next chapter. The preacher speaks of this in verses 23 and 24. He says, "'All this I have tested by wisdom.'" I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? The preacher says, trying to master this world with your wisdom and understanding and intellect is only going to lead to frustration and disappointment. Why? Because the more you know and the more you learn, the more you're going to find that you actually still have so much to learn, and you don't know that much in all reality. The world is deep and complex and complicated. The moment you think you have it figured out, it will slip through your fingers. I know we like to think of ourselves as highly rational creatures. And, and truly, the human intellect can—it does often show itself to be impressive at times. But still, we are highly limited in our capacities for knowledge and understanding. And that's, that's just true of us in our humanity, not to mention the fact that we are fallen humanity. Because of this, our our capacity for for reason is not only limited, but it's deeply marred and broken by the fall. And so instead of thinking rationally and reasonably, much of the time, our best wisdom and thinking actually leads us to adopt foolish ideas and to make stupid decisions. The recovery community seems to know this better than anyone. As you hear them often say, my, my own best thinking got me here. Indeed, our, our own best thinking is what led to our fall in the garden in the first place. Our own best thinking is what has led to war and homicide and genocide. Our own best thinking is what has led to the, 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 the invention of nuclear bombs and other highly sophisticated, convenient ways to kill one another. Our own best thinking is what has led to the Holocaust and to abortion and Darfur. Thinking that we would do better as the gods of our lives and the one true God. And the result is is the mess of this broken and fallen world. And so the preacher leads us to consider this further in verses 25 to 29. We see him speak, lastly, to the depravity of humanity. Look with me, starting at verse 25. He said, "'I turn my heart to know and to search out "'and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things "'and to know the wickedness of folly "'and the foolishness that is madness. And "'I find something more bitter than death. "'The woman whose heart is snares and nets "'and whose hands are fetters, "'he who pleases God escapes her, "'but the sinner is taken by her. "'Behold, this is what I found,' says the preacher." while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This particular passage has given the preacher a reputation, somewhat of a reputation for being a misogynist. I don't think that's fair. I don't think those who label him as such, really understand what he's saying here. Here he's, he's drawing our attention back to observe the foolishness of fallen humanity and the results of it in this broken world. And he ends up speaking about foolishness in a kind of personified way. He speaks of foolishness as an adulterous woman, a, a seductress. And of course, if you're at all familiar with the Bible's wisdom literature, you would know that this is nothing unique or new here to this passage. And in the wisdom literature of King Solomon, who is likely supposed to be our, our, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, in the wisdom literature of King Solomon, he often speaks of two women, that of Lady Folly and that of Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom is a, is a virtuous woman. If you listen to her voice and follow her, you will flourish. Proverbs 3, 15, 18 says of Lady Wisdom. He says, she is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold fast are called blessed. On the other hand, though, there's Lady Folly. We See, Lady Folly talked about much in, in Solomon's wisdom literature. Proverbs nine thirteen to 18 says of her, much the same about Lady Folly here. He says that her heart is a trap and her hands are handcuffs. To listen to her voice, to follow the path of folly, to listen to foolish counsel will lead to death and destruction, and not just temporally, but eternally as you go down into Sheol. And so the preacher counsels us to escape, to flee from her. Don't be a fool, he says. Flee from Lady Folly. Whatever particular shape her voice may take in your life, flee from her. If she calls you to look at pornography, flee from her. If she calls you to abuse drugs or the bottle, flee from her. If she calls you to gossip, flee from her. If she calls you to laziness, flee from her. If she calls you to adultery, flee from her. If she calls you to greed and consumerism, flee from her. If she calls you to disregard and disobey God's word in any way, shape, or form, flee from her. And yet the preacher says how rare it is to actually find someone who has escaped her. That's what he says in verses 27 and 28. He says, if I was forced to add up all those that I found that have escaped her, I'd say one man and a thousand and no women. And now he's not saying that he actually counted a thousand men and all the women in the world and that he found one righteous man and zero righteous women. It's it's poetry. It's not meant to be read in an overly rigid or literalistic way. It's, It's a poetic way of saying this. When all is said and done, I don't know anyone who has actually walked uprightly and wisely in all their dealings in life. Everyone I know has lived in a corrupt and foolish manner. And thus he concludes in verse 29. He says, See this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Which means that while God created humanity in his own image, and in a state which, which Genesis one thirty one says is not only good, but very good. While all that is true, we have rejected God's purpose and design. Instead, we've sought out many schemes, which is another way of saying that we've sought our own way. We've lived and acted According to our own philosophies and views of things, instead of fearing God and humbly submitting to his word, we've chosen to reject his word and to go our own way. We don't submit to what God says to do with our money. We have our own ideas. We don't submit to what God says to do with our sexual organs. We do our own thing. We don't submit to what God says to do with food and alcohol. We consume in excess. We don't don't submit to what God says to do with our tongues and lips. We curse and gossip. We could go on and on here. We do our own thing. We follow our own ideas. We seek out many schemes. And thus the world is this fallen and broken place. It's all gone to heaven. None of it makes sense. And we're the ones who made it this way. We're the ones who've made it this way. We've ruined ourselves. We've ruined God's good world. We've wrecked his good creation with our foolishness and and wickedness. And what then shall we do? we have to come to God in fear and humility, confessing to him that we are not righteous and thus can't make sense of this world, can't master this world by our own righteousness confessing that we are foolish and thus can't make sense of this world and can't master this world by our own wisdom and understanding. Here's the most amazing thing. To the God to whom we ought to come to in fear and humility has given us Jesus. When we have no righteousness and no wisdom of our own, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Indeed, to us who, who have no righteousness, Christ became our righteousness. We are sinners, the lot of us. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of this, my friends, God is not pleased with us. As our our righteous and holy creator, he can't simply overlook our sin and foolishness and wickedness. He's not a senile old grandfather who winks at our sin. Our wickedness demands retribution, and his righteousness demands satisfaction because of our sin. Yet because we're not righteous, because we are foolish, because we are wicked, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Pursuing this, what the preacher calls being overly righteous, will not work. It's just another form of wickedness. Trying to earn a good spot with God by our own moralistic efforts and our own strength. It's a fool's errand. The only destiny we deserve from God is that of eternal punishment in the hell of the lake of fire. That's what we deserve. Thanks be to God. Because of his great mercy, he has not left us to die in our sins. Because of his great love, he sent his own son into the hevel of this world. And indeed, while there's no righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, he is the one righteous man. He's the one righteous man in 1,000. He always lived uprightly. He always pleased God in thought, in word, in deed. He never sought out his own schemes. He followed and answered the call of Lady Wisdom. He was not wicked. He was not self-righteous. Rather, he was the perfect embodiment of righteousness and wisdom. And yet, while he lived the life that you and I should have lived, he also accepted the penalty that you and I deserve for not living the life that we should have lived. Instead, he went... To the cross to die as a cursed sinner. And there upon that cross, the Lord Jesus took on the punishment of us foolish and wicked sinners, and he did so that we might be counted righteous with his very own perfect righteousness. As the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, 20, 5, he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, though perfectly righteous, was punished as a sinner on the cross so that we who are sinners might be counted as perfectly righteous. And don't you know what this means? This means that we're, if you trust in Christ, if you come to God in fear and humility, you're no longer counted as guilty before the God and sovereign of the universe. Instead, if we come to him in fear and humility, he receives us as his very own children. He freely and fully accepts us as his very own children, counted as righteous, counted as perfect, as upright, as worthy, counted as his very own beloved children, faultless and guiltless, fully justified before him on his throne. Although we've sinned, and do sin and deserve nothing of the sort, brothers and sisters. We are free from the guilt of our sin. Our consciences can be cleaned and cleansed. You're forgiven, Christian. You are forgiven and you are justified before the sovereign and holy God. Now that God has accepted us and received us as his very own children, he's also teaching us how to live as his children, how to be wise, how to live uprightly. Of course, there's still so much about this world that we don't understand, but God has given us his word and his spirit and his people so that we're not left to ourselves to figure it out on our own. And of course, living according to his word gives no guarantee that life will always go well for us. We very well might perish in our righteousness, as, as the preacher says in verse 15. We have no promise of an easy life. Instead, Jesus actually promises the opposite. He says, if we walk in righteousness in this world, because this world is crooked, because this world doesn't make sense, often we will meet with opposition and suffering, such as the life of people, righteous people in this vain and futile world. And yet God has also promised that it will not always be so. We know this because Christ Jesus, who died on that cross in our place also rose from the dead on the third day and he ascended to heaven from where he promised to return for us. And when, when he returns, he promised that what he began in his own resurrection 2,000 years ago will be completed. And we'll live with him here in a new heaven, in a new earth, possessing a life free from suffering, free from temptation, free from the enticements of lady folly, free from sin, free from suffering, free from death. The question is, though, where, where will you be? Will you be there with him? Will you trust him now and come before him in fear and humility, admitting your own moral corruption and your own intellectual limitations? Will you acknowledge your, your wickedness and foolishness? Will you confess that you are not righteous and wise and that you, therefore, need the perfect righteousness and wisdom of the risen Christ? If you will, God himself will be your father and you will be his child and he will teach you wisdom. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare now to come to the table, would you seal this word upon our hearts and cause us to receive afresh again the gifts and the benefits of the Lord Jesus of his broken body, of his shed blood, as he sacrificed himself for our sins. Would you also cause us to to be assured this morning as we come forward that we are your children, your very own beloved children, not because of our own righteousness, not because of our own wisdom, but because of the perfectly righteous and wise Christ. Remind us of that. And Lord, if there are any here, who do not trust you, have not put their faith and trust in you alone for salvation as you have offered in the gospel. Would you work in their hearts, open their ears to hear your voice, open their eyes to see the Christ, soften their hearts to receive the truth of your word. Grant them true belief and true repentance for the glory of your name. pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.